previously on American Jihadi. It was kind of weird to be waking up every day and not be getting your communications. Frankly, dude, I didn't know if you were still alive. <laughs> Hamami found himself on the side of Al-Shabaab that started to call for some moderation, that indiscriminate killing was not okay. I always told him to just be a man of honor and stick to his principles. He went against the most evil guy in the Shababs. And when you go against that guy, there was only one way out of the door and it's to be killed. What happens if they find you? What are they gonna do to you? There's a story that Omar's father, Shafiq, told me about Omar as a young man. Omar had just turned 20. He and Shafiq had been locked in a long-running argument about how dogmatic Omar had become about Islam since his conversion. As a way to mend fences, they agreed to travel together to Syria to visit Shafiq's relatives. It didn't work out the way Shafiq had hoped. We were in a resort area on the Mediterranean with friends and families there. And somehow he broke loose from us. And he went to Internet Cafe. He just had to be uh, on the Internet. Omar had become obsessed with fundamentalist Islamic forums online, forums that the security services in Syria kept a close eye on. So apparently he drew the attention of the secret police. That's true. They stopped him and and, uh, they were going to put him in jail. Shafiq managed to smooth things over. But he knew that Omar wasn't content to keep his head down. Omar talked openly about his plan to move on from Syria to Yemen, despite the fact that there were the beginnings of a civil war there. I knew at the time it, was, it wasn't the place to be. I mean, it was chaos. I mean, Yemen is always in chaos. Omar said he wanted to go study there, but his dad hated the idea. I didn't know how to stop him, so I took the passport and hid it. Shafiq lied to Omar and told him the secret police had taken it. He was just defiant. He was... Why? What, what did I do? Why are they doing that? For Shafiq, the story is about Omar's Americanness. Shafiq had threatened his son with the most frightening thing he knew of, the Syrian secret police. And Omar didn't care. He wants to challenge the secret police in Syria. Can you get any more bravado than this? It's the sense of superiority instilled in every American. So it's that carelessness and, and, and feeling like We can do whatever we want. To me, though, the story's actually about Shafiq, about this desperate step he took when he realized how far his son was willing to go for what he believed in, about how powerless Shafiq was to change Omar's mind. It was a feeling Omar would incite in a lot of people. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 6, Abu M. American. When Omar had called me while I was at the Christmas party, the one where I was surrounded by former CIA and State Department officials, it turned out he wanted to alert me to yet one more turn things had taken in his feud with al-Shabaab. I got off the phone with him before he gave me any details, and I didn't answer any of his calls after that. So I learned about what was happening the same way the rest of the world did, on Twitter. On its official account, al-Shabaab tweeted out a statement about Omar. The video Omar had posted, the one where he called on the leaders of al-Qaeda to intervene in al-Shabaab, that was the last straw. Al-Shabaab publicly disavowed Omar, saying he didn't represent the group and that his complaints, quote, stemmed purely from a narcissistic pursuit of fame. 
For the next three months, a bizarre and very public fight played out online. And Omar's audience expanded way beyond me and started to include some very different folks. People like former FBI agent Clint Watts. I was doing social media tracking, uh, mostly of terrorists, because I was kind of just bored. Watts was living in Boston with his wife and young daughter and working as a consultant. To keep one foot in the counterterrorism world, he started a blog. And it gave me a way when I had to work a job that I didn't want to be working in a town that I didn't want to be in. And so the blog was my outlet to like still be in my field and somewhat relevant. In early January, Watts saw a new tweet from Omar's account, Abu M. American. Shabab make official announcement in front of Emriki. Drop your weapon before 15 days or be killed. It's on. After that, Omar went nuts. It was mind-boggling for me to watch. The same Omar who had insisted on only communicating with me under encryption was now putting all of al-Shabaab's dirty laundry up on Twitter. Over the course of two days, he posted 53 separate times. He compared the leaders to Nazis. Omar publicly accused Abdi Gadane, the leader of al-Shabaab, of being responsible for a series of assassinations of fighters who'd opposed him. Clint Watts could hardly believe it. Hamami revealed two things that were critical. One, that Godani was having a coup and was bringing together all the power under him by creating a formal relationship with Al-Qaeda Central. And two, that Godani was achieving his goal by eliminating anyone who might have served as an intermediary between him and Al-Qaeda. All the old Al-Qaeda hands inside Somalia were being killed off, he alleges, by the emir of Shabab. That is, by Gadane. A friend of Watts, another terrorism analyst named J.M. Berger, was also following Omar. He says what was interesting wasn't just what Omar was saying, but the response it got. There were a bunch of people from Al-Shabaab who were getting on and tweeting things like, you know, the hyenas are going to be eating your bones. Yeah, there was a lot of hyenas in there for some reason. Each time a new account tweeted at Omar to call him a liar or a traitor or a dead man, Berger could add him to his list of potential Al-Shabaab members. For Berger, it was a goldmine. Most of the activity, jihadist activity online, had taken place in these closed message board forums where you had to have a password to get in and somebody had to vouch for you before you could get a password. This was a huge game changer. It just really put these guys out in front of uh, analysts in a way that was, you know, the golden age of what we call open source intelligence. You know, we were just able to create incredible trails to, to document their activity, and this included Omar. It was boom, 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 boom. So I would key in on those conversations and watch everything that was being said. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. We were seeing this civil war in al-Shabaab that was suddenly playing out in real time on our screens. For Watson Berger, it wasn't just that they got to learn the inside scoop on this terrorist organization. It was that it was al-Shabaab's former poster boy who was the one telling people how bad things had gotten. We were happy to have that information be out there <laughs> because it highlighted the dangers of joining these organizations. People don't want to join a terrorist group if they think the terrorist group is going to turn on them and kill them. So I just wanted him to keep talking. He highlighted that, you know, they're not always what they seem, that, you know, you think you're going to go and be part of something great, and then they decide they're sick of you and they're going to kill you. That was a pretty good message for a counterterrorism Omar appeared to thrive with the new attention he was receiving on Twitter. He finally had the platform for his voice to be heard. He had a vision of himself as being somebody who was special, and he really saw himself as 
someone who could play a really important role in, in both al-Shabaab specifically and in the jihadist movement generally. And occasionally he would try and be like a prophet, right? He would post his Arabic thing and his manifestos and you're like, you know, I'd be like, come on, man, like you're not really the next bin Laden. Let's just calm down. Right. He sort of thought of himself as that. He was aspiring to be more like Anwar Alaki, who was an American cleric who became the most visible voice of, of Al-Qaeda, really one of their chief ideologues in the English language. Um, I think that's what he wanted for himself. He wanted to be an ideologue. He wanted to be an inspirational figure that suited his, his narcissistic tendencies. It didn't take long for Omar to become aware that it wasn't just other jihadists who were following him on Twitter. And he was more than happy to engage with them, even folks like Berger. We were all pretty hesitant about giving him a lot of oxygen. Uh, we didn't want him to, you know, uh, become famous thanks to his interactions with us. And so I kept trying to push him into more private conversations because I wanted to hear what he had to say. I just didn't want to make a big show of it. Watts took a more direct approach, intentionally baiting Omar on his blog. I remember I would set up my laptop and I'd feed my daughter oatmeal. And then I'd see his first like tweet in the morning and then I would post and shoot it out because I knew I had his attention. And he would ping right back, you know, usually within 10 minutes, always wanting to correct you about something that you had wrong, which he didn't realize. I would deliberately put things wrong in there so that he would respond back to me. And then I would, you know, try to keep the dialogue going with that. When other analysts questioned whether the Twitter account really belonged to Omar, Watts got Omar to help him prove that it did. People like, you're an idiot. That's not him. And so I deliberately wrote a blog post. I was like, maybe we don't need to listen to any of this because it could just be some kid like in his basement or something to that effect. I was like, so this is a waste of time. And I knew that would drive him crazy. And so that was the next day he said uh, something like, Clint Watts, no one's providing you with the information. And then he posted the picture and it said January 11, 2013. In the photo, Omar stood next to three other foreign fighters squinting at the sun holding a handwritten sign with the day's date. And then that's when everybody was like, no shit, that is Omar Hamami, right? Like, he was validating his identity, and some reason it was so important to him to say, like, this is me, this is me. Omar was very focused on trying to protect his operational security, but he wasn't really that good at it, so he dropped a lot of breadcrumbs. Sometimes Watson Berger would even work together to trick Omar into giving them clues. We would send him links to click on, you know, and he would click on them and we'd get his IP address and we'd get a little bit of information there. He would make what I thought were dumb mistakes about his location, you know, at times. He would be like, I'm on a cart and we got to have ice today. And I was like, well, you just told everybody you're within a 30-minute ride of an ice machine. How many of those do you think there are in Southern Somalia, right? He would tweet about there had been, you know, caught in a rainstorm. And so we, like, went to the maps and looked at Somalia because it's, you know, there's big chunks of Somalia where it's not necessarily raining. Slowly but surely, we developed a pretty good map of, of his activities. Omar's carelessness opened him up to real risk. In March of 2013, three months into Omar's tirade on Twitter, the U.S. government announced that it would offer $5 million for any information leading to his capture. Matchbooks and posters were distributed with Omar's picture and information in Somali about how to collect the reward. Around that time, Omar posted a picture of his own on Twitter. It's a family portrait of Omar kneeling on a blanket next to one of his wives and one of his daughters, both covered in full burqas so that only their eyes are showing. Behind them is the Somali bush and a small dome tent covered in tarps. Omar smiles for the camera. That is an American 
family picnic picture. Like we go for a picnic, we got the blanket out and we take a picture. To Watts, the picture was proof of the fault line that ran right down the middle of Omar's identity. I'm like, wow, he to the end was trying to live in two worlds, right? He was trying to live in this world where he was this kid in Alabama and he's taking this picture as if he's at a picnic, right? And at the same point, he's got the AK-47 like he's, you know, the next bin Laden and he's out in the hinterlands of Somalia. And it just was remarkable to me, like the point he had navigated himself into, right? He's on the hunt from all directions, right? He's really out there on his own. There was a three-month period at the beginning of 2013 when I didn't communicate with Omar at all. No phone calls, no emails, or direct messages. While a part of me was relieved not to have the responsibility for tracking Omar's roller coaster story anymore, another part of me was, frankly, jealous that this source I'd spent months cultivating was now just out there in the open, ready to talk to whoever bothered to send him a tweet. And so you would see a lot of journalists, I thought, sort of fall in love with Omar, you know, in those Twitter conversations and forget, like, oh, he did confess to killing people. They would forget that part because you see the person as somebody you know now. And I thought that was an interesting dynamic to watch, even when they're not being recruited, but they're being sucked in a little bit to the fact that he is normal in a lot of senses. On top of that, Watts says to anyone who was paying attention, it was hard to miss how rough Omar's life had gotten. He especially noticed it in the photos Omar posted. You could tell he was very hungry. He was putting on a good masquerade publicly, but I knew if you're in the woods of inner Somalia trying to survive, you're hunting, you're surviving off the land, it's insanely hot, like you're suffering. Clint Watts and J.M. Berger had started watching Omar and then going back and forth with him for reasons that were, in a lot of ways, pretty different from mine. But in the end, they ended up in a similar place. I've always been one to you know, think about terrorists as being human. They're people. And there's one thing to understand that and integrate that into your work. And it's another thing to sort of have that experience of talking to somebody day in and day out. Because what happened was he just became part of my my daily life and the people I talk to every day. And it was weird because we weren't friends. We had real obstacles between us. And, you know, uh, at the same time, there, there was this weird, I don't know, I guess, uh, rapport you know, for a while. This is my way to get through my day. And I think for Omar, in a lot of ways, Twitter was his way to get through his day, you know, when he was, like, super isolated. Yeah, we were, we were on totally different parallels, but it is interesting, like, how many times I would be like, oh, man, I think this guy is suffering, too, and he's just in his own way suffering. I did try and encourage him to to come in. I tried to encourage him to give himself up and, and try and make some kind of deal. I couldn't guarantee anything, and I, I don't have those kinds of contacts in the government, but I had enough contacts that, you know, I was like, look, if you want to try and surrender and get out of this alive, I can put you in touch with somebody. You're probably not going to get out of this, you know, scot-free. You're not going to, like, go go live freely in the United States somewhere. You'll have to do some jail time, but you'll be alive. And your family will be alive, and you'd be able to see them someday. And, you know, he just wasn't, he wouldn't do it. He was too committed to, to what he was doing, even when it was clearly a lost cause. 
He said, I appreciate the compassion, but I'm not, I'm not interested. Thank you. For three months, I watched Omar on Twitter, arguing with trolls, trading jabs with Watson Berger, holding a Q&A with anyone who would listen. Most of my brain was taken up with the slow-motion car crash of the end of my marriage. But every so often, I'd check in on Omar, on the story that once upon a time, I had worked so hard to get. And then one day, after the separation from my wife was final, I decided that what I needed to do to get my life back on track was to get the story back, even if I only had the vaguest idea what I meant by that. So I sent a message to Omar. I told him about my separation. I told him to call me. Can you hear now? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. My way of dealing with Omar had always yeah, been yeah, to yeah. open up to him in hopes that it would make him be open with me. What was that? But on that call, my dials were all cranked way too high. Yeah, dude, so I'm like, I'm still married, but I think I'm getting divorced. You I know, told Omar things yeah, I hadn't told a lot of my closest friends. It's fucked up. It's terrible. So, I mean, that's why I've been distracted these past, like, three months, because it's just been, like, all I can think about. But Omar told um, me not to worry, yeah, man, that I was a catch, that there were plenty of fish in the sea. Six years? That I had my whole life ahead of me. No kids? No kids. I did ask some of the questions a journalist was supposed to ask. But on that call, I just didn't care about Al-Shabaab's relationship to Al-Qaeda. What the fuck are you going to do, man? Like, I mean, you've got this $5 million bounty on your head. Or what Omar thought about Abdi Ghadane. Are are you just going to live life as normal, or do you think the end is in sight soon? I just wanted to know if he thought he was safe. You're saying you're not not concerned or scared right now? No, no, we're just kicking it. No, but like, uh, it's one of those things like... For more than a year, Omar's mother, Deborah, had been calling me once a week or so. At first to see if there was any news about Omar, then sometimes just to check in on me. She called me again a week after that call with Omar. She asked if I'd been on Twitter, if I knew what had happened. I got off the phone and opened my laptop. On Omar's Twitter account, there was a photo. It was a close-up of his face. He looked thin and tired. He was grimacing. Beneath his matted beard, a stream of bright red blood ran down his neck soaking the top of his t-shirt. The tweet, there for anyone who wanted to see it, read, just been shot in neck by Shabab assassin. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business Affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions. Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Coming up on American Jihadi. Amnia is the most feared group within Al Shabaab. That's the hit squad. It could be your driver, it could be the shopkeeper, it could be anyone. How's your neck? Your neck. Are you okay? Are you wounded? Your neck, is it okay? <laughs>